Well, welcome everybody. We are glad that you're able to worship with us this morning. Members, we're happy you're here, of course, and uh, online visitors, we're happy that you are here as well, online members. And visitors, we are very grateful that you've come to join us today. You've come to a good church, and uh, these are good people, and I hope you have a chance to meet some folks. We'll have some coffee maybe, and uh, after this worship service, please uh, stay around long enough for us to get to know you. Uh, we're missing some of our folks, our, our, uh, our, our young people went away to uh, Leadership Training for Christ this weekend. A lot of them are still gone, so we miss some of those, but we are grateful that we have a chance to be together on this fine Sunday. Uh, Yodi and I are kind of sad right now because we've been looking forward for three years to Steve and Jill Rains coming from New Zealand uh, to stay with us and to, and to kind of renew contacts here in the United States. They've been, because of COVID, trapped in New Zealand for three years. Usually they'll make a trip every year, every year and a half or two years, and oftentimes they'll stay at our house. They're good, dear friends of ours now. And uh, I, I will tell you that Yodi and Jill had planned for months how much fun they were going to have together on this trip after three years of, of waiting. And uh, Jill and Steve both had to take a COVID test to get into the airport and another COVID test either to get out of the airport again. I can't remember. They passed two different COVID tests. They all have their boosters. The second day after landing in the United States, Jill Raines tested positive for COVID. Now, the reason I'm telling you that, it's sad. Yeah, you're right. Good. Thank you for the groan. Um, the reason I'm telling you that is because Steve Raines really wanted to be here with us this morning. Uh, and in fact, uh, at one point, we had a whole set of seats set up back in the fellowship hall. He was going to be able to talk to us about the great work that they do uh, with the South Pacific Bible School, which is an amazing school. I've been there and taught there. It, it, it has students from all over uh, that South Pacific area, not just New Zealand. He was going to be able to talk to us. Wilshire's very active in supporting that work. Some of your money that you donate goes to help those students and to help that school function. And he wanted to come and be with us, and uh, because he's exposed to someone who has tested positive for, for COVID, we kind of discussed it and thought it would be better for him not to do that. So we're going to have to put that on hold. Uh, some of you knew that was maybe going to happen today, so I'm just telling you, we don't get to have that. Uh, what we have instead for Bible classes is one united Bible class here in the auditorium. Did I say everything I was supposed to say, Tammy? Okay, good. Tammy gave me really explicit instructions, so I wanted to make sure I got that all said. What is God like? What's God like? You know, sometimes when Ethan picks his songs, I feel like I don't really need to get up and preach the sermon because everything I wanted to say, we've already sung it. Today is one of those days, Ethan. 
if you listen to the, to the words of the songs that we just sang, you already know the answer I'm going to give. What is God like? God is love. And that's a big deal because, you know, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, God is hard not to think about as a human being. And people have thought about God and wondered about God. What is God really like? We've got, you know, from the ancient Indian tradition, we have this idea that God just is existence. God permeates everything, and it's what makes things not just an idea, but actually real. That's what God is. That's one of the most famous definitions for God out of Hinduism. We have a, a guy, I think it's Samuel Johnson, who, who said, God is the sphere whose circumference is infinite and whose center is everywhere. That was super helpful, Johnson, I just got to say. Y'all cleared up now on what God is? Of course, God has been described as the architect of the world, a great clockmaker who winds everything up and sets everything in motion according to the laws of nature. Um, in the Sistine Chapel in, in the Vatican, there are two famous pictures of God. One's way more famous than the other. One you've seen rep reproductions of. God as the creator. God reaching out and passing into the lifeless Adam the breath of life, touching him and making him alive. There's another famous image in that same chapel. On one of the walls, you have the last judgment. The center of the ceiling, God is creator. On one of the walls, the last judgment. And there's God separating the righteous from the unrighteous. The unrighteous going away to the lake of fire. It's there on the wall. It's a very scary image. It comes from a later time in Michelangelo's life. God as the giver of life. God as the judge of life. What is God like? Well, all of those ideas have a grain of truth in them. The fact is, I don't think God built us, built our brains, built our minds to be able to think all that clearly about him. You know, our minds are for, you know, having dominion in this world and carrying out God's will in this world. So our minds are kind of this world aimed and designed. So we're not really that good at thinking about what God is like. He's forever beyond us, dwells in unapproachable light. But John, in 1 John says, if you want to know the essence of what God is, the core of the core, all these ideas help us a little, the core of 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 what God is, God is love. That's a deeply profound teaching. Deeply profound. You can dive into that and hold your breath as long as you can and swim down and swim down and swim down. I guarantee you won't touch bottom. You can meditate on that 
for the rest of your life, and I guarantee you won't have explored it all. God is love. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love, verse 8 says. Then down in verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And down in verse 16, he comes back to this theme. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. That is a profound set of, profound in the sense of bottomlessly deep set of teachings about the nature of the one that we humans can't really stop thinking about. And that everything in our life depends on and hinges on. God is love. But John, when you say God is love, that still doesn't narrow it down for me all that well. Because especially in our modern English language, we use love for all kinds of stuff. When we say, I love God, we say, I love my wife, I love my husband, I love my kids. We use that same exact word to talk about the fact that, well, in my case, I love Cadbury eggs. I really do. And I really don't have a better word for what I feel about Cadbury eggs than that same word I use in all those other ways. Love doesn't narrow it down very well for us. And John says, I gotcha. I gotcha. Keep reading. I'll explain to you, when we say God is love, this is our best picture of what that means. 1 John 4, 9 through 11. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Remember, this is John, same one who wrote John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son. Right? That's what love of God means. God sent Jesus God's love is revealed most clearly in the self-sacrifice of the cross. You want to think about God, you can think about him as the infinite sphere whose circumference is infinite and center is everywhere, if you want, if that helps. But John says, here's what you should think about. Since your brain is too small to really capture God, Think about the image of Jesus Christ, who is the one through whom the entire universe is created, the one through whom God will judge the whole world, who could have called 10,000 angels to protect him, and yet allows himself to die on the cross for you. That's the love of God. Think on that. John says, this is love, verse 10, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. That's just it. God is love. The meaning of love is self-sacrifice, especially the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That is really different than what I feel about Cadbury eggs. The love that we are talking about is a love that overflows to bless other people. Sacrifices, even the ultimate sacrifice, for the good of other people. That's another passage you can swim down as far as you want. You can meditate on for as many days as you have left, and you won't get to the end of it. Love is the self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because God has loved us, that's the, that's the energy for the great command. Love one another. Love one another. John wants to clarify this even more in his readers' minds, partly because there may have been some static about this due to a split that had happened in the church. When church splits happen, which apparently is what was going on here in these letters of John, we, have, we may even have in our hearts the idea that we're supposed to love everybody, but when church splits happen, or any kind of splits really, that kind of gets pushed to the bottom of our minds and replaced with our resentment and anger at the people who've hurt us and we feel have disrespected us. And so John says this, down in verse 20 and 21, if you're following, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Period. Could you put some qualifiers on it, John? Could you make it less absolute? He says, nope, those are the biggies. Love God, love each other. Those are the big ones. All the others have qualifiers. Those are the two big ones that judge all the other things that we do. Love God, love your brothers and sisters, love each other. He gets even more specific. If you read the previous chapter, look back in chapter 3 with me if you've got your Bibles. Look at verse 11 for a second if you have your Bibles. This is on the study sheet too. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Same command, love one another. This matters. This thing about loving God can't just be a vague thought you have in your mind. Yeah, I love God. I like God. God's good. He's like a Cadbury egg. He's there when I need him most. 
says, no. You say you love God and you don't love each other. You don't really love God either. These two are intimately connected. One only grows because the other is growing. Then look down in verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Let's make it more real. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but in action and in truth. Start from this grand theoretical statement, God is love. And I could live with all kinds of interpretations of God is love. But John won't let me. He says, this is what love is. It's self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And if you love God the way he's loved you, then you're going to love each other. Okay, well, I can kind of vaguely love people, you know, especially in a general sense, if I don't think about specific people. I can kind of have a warm, you know, warm feeling, kind of like a Cadbury egg. I'm really thinking about Cadbury eggs today. That's a problem, Yodi. I can have a warm, general feeling about loving people. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Here's how you know you love people. You sacrifice for them. Do you? Do you do anything at all that inconvenience you a little bit? that cost you something for the sake of your brothers and sisters. That's how you know if any of this stuff is actually taking root in your heart. This has been an important theme. You know, John talks about it. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. It's a, it's a crucial characteristic of the church is that Christians, because they've been loved so much that God loves them enough to die for them in the form of Jesus on the cross, that Christians, the more they mature and the more they grow up, the more they can hardly stop themselves from wanting to give. And, and Wilshire's a wonderful church for this. Don't get me wrong. I mean... This is a wonderful country. I've got a lot of people who are growing in love in this place because, you know, whenever there's a need of almost any kind, one of the first questions Jeremy and I and the elders and deacons will get is, well, what could, what could, I, get, what could I do about that? Can I help with that? Here's some money. Here's some goods. Here's, here's something. I want to do something. And it's good that that's happening at this place. It's good that that happened more and more because John says, this is how you know this stuff is really in you. Is that you naturally start to give that out. That early Jerusalem church, people say, 
I don't even think this stuff is mine anymore. God has been so generous to me. We got poor people here, really starving people. I'm going to, I'm going to sell my property if necessary, whatever it takes. I'm going to make sure these needs are met. A famous document from the second century, it's called the, the Way of the Twelve, the Didache, Way of the Twelve, early Christian document. And one of the things that the Didache says is, when you have extra money, you know, money you're not going to use, it's just there, it should like sweat in your hand. Such a such a concrete image. You got this extra money. You're not going to use it. It should sweat. It should itch in your hand until you figure out how you can do some good with it. You're not going to take that and say, "Well, save it for a rainy day." You're you're going to. I wonder who I could help with this. I could be a little like God sending Jesus to save us with this little bit of money I have. The Didache says, there is a famous preacher from Syria, like he was third or fourth century, I think. Sorry, I hang out with a lot of Bible nerds, so I get this stuff. Uh, His name was Golden Throat. That was a nickname that the churches gave to him. Golden Throat, Chrysostom, Golden Throat. And uh, he was an amazing orator, I think. That's how he got that name. But one of his persistent themes, it comes up a lot in the sermons that we have preserved of his, is excess wealth that is not used to help the poor and needy is the same as robbery. He didn't pull any punches. And you can tell in some of the other things he says that he got attacked for saying that by the rich people. But he said, that's the way it is. If you have have money stored up over here, it's not going to do you any good. You're just kind of keeping it, hanging around. And there are these people who really need it that are made by God and in need. Do something useful with what God has blessed you with. Because God could have just kept Jesus in heaven with him. But instead, God said, because they need it, not because they deserve it, because they need it, I send myself in the form of my son, Jesus Christ, to offer the sacrifice that will save everybody who's willing to be saved. And that's what changed our lives, then our lives change to be generous with others. There's another thing that John points out, and I love this one. Look in chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence, in his presence, God's presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. He says, this whole thing I've been talking about, where you, if you have stuff, and you know somebody else needs that stuff, and you are moved by generosity to give. That's how you know that you're walking in the truth. 
That's how you know that you're growing in the love of God. And that's one of the things that gives you confidence in the presence of God. Is that this is this transformation, you're seeing it happen in your life. Could you do more? Sure. And you will if you allow this process to continue. But that's how you can tell. And he says, and this is good for us because we feel guilty all the time. Our own consciences condemn us, and mine does. And yours does. I think about who God is. He's so righteous he can't even bear to look at sin. And I flash on my own life, which I've, I've tried, you know, and I've gotten rid of some sins, but man, I'm still a mess. And God can't even stand that right unrighteousness in my life. How can I be confident in his presence? How can I do anything except so, oh, please don't look at me, God. Please don't turn your judging gaze on me, God. Look away. I don't, I don't even want you to notice me. Mountains fall on me. Maybe you could hide me from that judging gaze of God. Because if God evaluates me by his righteousness, I can't make it. And John says, yeah, we all feel that way sometimes. And one of the ways that you can have confidence in the presence of even the judgment gaze of God is that you've realized God's love has sparked an answering love in your heart. It's being manifested in things you do and things you give and, and ways you, you sacrifice to help other people. That's one of the things that will kind of allow you to be confident. He's more explicit in the next chapter. Turn over to chapter 4. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is how love is, is made uh, complete or finished or mature among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. I don't know about you, but day of judgment and confidence are not words that go together very well in my brain. You know, when I th my first instinct, even today, my first instinct when I think about the day of judgment is, oh no. But John says, here's how you get over that. Here's how you look more and more with confidence on the day of judgment. It's this practical, self-sacrificing love that you give out into the world. He says that we can have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There's no fear in love, perfected love, or mature or grown-up love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment, and the one who fears has not grown up or been perfected in love. He says, if you're one that's really bothered by the judgment day and God's judging gaze, 
If that makes you tremble, it's terrible, so it should, it's scary. But he says, the more that you find your life being caught up in working for, sacrificing for, giving for the needs of other people, practical, you know, bare-knuckle love, gritty, greasy, grimy love, Love like Jesus. Love even when people don't love you back. When the more that's happening in your life, the less the judgment day will terrify you. The more you will say, oh, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. The more we grow up into loving like God, the more confidence we have to face the judgment. That's what John says to us. It's a whole package. God has loved us, loved us enough to sacrifice his son for us because he doesn't want us to face the consequences of our own sin. He wants to save us from that. And not because we're scared of him, not because it's our duty, but because we've actually internalized God really does love me that much. And that begins more and more to grow in us to say, I gotta love other people. I can't just look at other people and say, well, that's your problem. I gotta practically give and sacrifice for the good of others around me. We serve a God who is literally dying to save us. And right now, I don't know where you are, but it may be that you need to change something. You don't have to come forward to make a change. Most of our changes happen sitting right where you are. But if you need to come forward and ask for public prayers or support of some kind, then we're here to help with that. And if today is the day that you say, I want my sins to be washed away in the waters of baptism. I want the new life. I want the gift of the Holy Spirit that baptism promises. I want my life in Jesus to start today. If you want to be baptized today, And we can do that for you too. If there's anything we can help you with, why don't you come forward, tell us your need as we stand and are led in song.